All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode, we are going to be talking about the 1964 Best Picture winner musical, My Fair Lady, the George Cukor directed film based on the Lerner and Lowe musical. A lot of praise for the for the film, a lot for the musical and the music itself. But the content of the film made me wonder, John, It it's really why do we care about high society in film? Why is there such a fascination with upper class with learn with learning about you know people and and what what they i quote deal with when really it's just like oh they they're being pampered they have all these people waiting on them you know why are shows like bridgerton why is downton abbey so popular the crown it's like that kind of content today but even going back you know with my fair lady uh you can look i don't know we we can look at all you know, all about eve's high society a little bit about theater although that's like kind of like well done but then you have like on the waterfront which is more about the the blue collar working man which feels more like grounded in reality and then you go to like around the world in 80 days which is about you know men betting with each other if they can travel the world and be extravagant go around the world in 80 days and to me like when i watch my fair lady i just wonder like why like why why do i care about you know how the English language is spoken, why it's so beautiful, why Henry Higgins, all these servants that he has, like why, you know, Eliza Doolittle, what, like why she wants to be when like you kind of look at her dad and he doesn't mind being in the lower depths of society. I know it's like different times. It's totally different era and, and kind of what people want. But why in film do we, and, and really content creation, why do we care so much about high society life? I feel like it's always centered around British culture and in the British early 1900s or 1800s or even to the 1700s. And that kind of high society lifestyle is always shown from that British point of view. And I feel like Americans have always like really been fascinated by that. And I, I don't know if it's the, you know, this is our origin. This is kind of like where Americans started to then kind of lead to the revolution and, and kind of developing our own nation now. But it is odd that we've kind of always been hyper-focused about British culture when it comes to high society. And I I try to think of a lot of, like, high society films, even about, like, American high society. And I just don't really think we have many films like that. It's always, like, centered in love of British culture. And maybe that comes from the lavish costumes and the lavish sets that we have in, in a lot of these films and, and these motion pictures that are about, like, high society and, and the British in particular. But... I mean, there's definitely just a need and a want to see what we don't have, to see what like we can maybe never have as a viewer. And I think it's similar to the same way we look at horror where, you know, we don't want to be murdered, but there's something kind of enticing about seeing murder and seeing death and seeing like trauma on screen. And I think that kind of goes for the rich, you know, like not everyone wants to be lavish and in a high society and, and so bougie in that way, but a lot of us kind of wish we did or wish we had that level of power or wish we had that amount of money to have that kind of clothes I think it's like the selfish desire in a lot of us to kind of explore that and then look inside and, and say like I do want that but it's also kind of like removed 
and you're just an outside viewer of that. So, yeah, it's such a hard kind of question to narrow down, and I wonder specifically why British in particular. But what do you think, Ben? Well, it's probably British because of how long and the amount of control they had over the world, over entertainment, and, yeah, we, like, we come from that culture like part of our culture is built off of british culture and and how we look on you know you know upper class middle class lower class society and the emphasis on the upper class getting so much and there's obviously a lot of like social politics with it but then when it gets into the entertainment and the creation of stuff it it just feels like that there's so much that focuses it's so hyper focused on on high society if especially if it's a lower class story. It's about the lower class wanting to become upper class. Like how many lower class stories are there where they're like, oh yeah, I'm poor and, and this is not what the story's about. Like I'm just trying to, I don't know, like could, you know, become a good guitarist type of thing. Like it's never, a, like sometimes it, it becomes such an emphasis that it becomes repetitive and, you know, maybe My Fair Lady is an early and I know because based off of Pygmalion and that was a really early story, it's a Greek myth. So maybe there is more to that, that there's this fascination of high society that has been in the subconscious of of people and society forever for, for thousands and thousands of years. But it just watching it now and, and some of the class struggle that you see in today's world, it, it just like I'm like, so what? Like, who cares? And then, you know, the. And then when it comes to like the musical aspect of this movie and the way that people just adore the music, it's like, are they more fascinated with the music? Are they more fascinated with Audrey Hepburn? Are they more fascinated with Rex, Rex Harrison, the costumes? Because that seems to be what I've pulled from when I've asked people, you know, they really love the costume, the singing and the minimal dancing, uh, which we'll, we will get into that. But just high society really stuck out to me while watching this movie and Eliza Doolittle's like struggles you know struggle to like become a part of it was so prevalent to me that i, I just felt like i need to ask that question is like why like why do we care about this like why is there such an emphasis is there just a lack of other stories to tell is just like so many stories just lead back to like wanting to you know reach different stratospheres of society and trying to work your way up trying to get money i don't think it's a power thing but just trying to have more in life more things to enjoy no, I don't think there's really much else to add. I think it's a it's a question that we'll never really be able to probably understand without so much context of th that generation. And it's so interesting to think about the 60s as well and, and kind of the focus of this decade and how much we're focusing on British culture when, I mean, I we still look back at 60s and 70s in, in the United States today as being such a thriving era when it comes to fashion and technology and how we're pushing forward and, and really becoming such like a dominant powerhouse. And then obviously in the eighties where we become like this insane powerhouse in the entire globe. But it's so weird that we're looking beyond that. And we're looking in the past when in the sixties we're like, so, so in charge of this insanely flamboyant colors and this beautiful fashion that we have uh, at the time now, but we still find the need to like go back and, and look back and, I just I feel like it has to do with the look of it and just looking at something that is so grand and, and lavish and even the London ugly streets like they try to make them look big and huge and and very much like large scale like you would see in, in a lot of musicals. But it's just a question. I don't think we can really nail down exactly why. Yeah, I love that you brought up the 60s aspect of it because uh, and I talked about a lot of that in Tom Jones. It's like free flowing, the love, the 
being very, you know, like, oh, like the world, man. Everyone's just like having a good time and everyone's trying to be free. And there's just an emphasis on finding yourself. And then, you know, this movie, you know, My Fair Lady comes out and it wins, you know, best picture. And it's like, wait, wait a second. That doesn't really add up because now we we've emphasized so much of like, hey, like, you know, especially in Tom Jones, where Tom Jones kind of pokes fun at high society in many ways. And it's like now we went to the other opposite end of the spectrum. And it's like, okay, but now we we care too much about high society, and it's ugly in many ways. I think that uh, the characters of of Henry Higgins is so disturbing, and it's like kind of what's wrong with high society. And and I guess that is sort of like mocked in this movie, but it's not mocked enough, or at least not done in a more overtly way that it's believable that the at the director, the writers, the creators of the musical and the film actually believed it. So it, 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 I'm great. I'm glad he brought the 60s and, and that point, because, again, it's like it sticks out like a sore thumb. And I have a really interesting theory, which I think I want to wait until the Oscars part of this conversation as to why this movie did win. Um, and maybe we'll pick it up as we get along through the conversation. But I, there's a lot to, to talk about this movie in terms of why. I think why is a question that will come up throughout uh, our conversation. So. Let me ask that question to you, John. Is My Fair Lady worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1964? My Fair Lady. In 1910's London, snobbish phonetics professor Henry Higgins agrees to a wager that he can make a crude flower girl, Eliza Doolittle, presentable in high society. In Edwardian London, Eliza Doolittle is a flower girl with a thick Cockney accent. The noted phonetician, Professor Henry Higgins, encounters Eliza at Covent Garden and laments the vulgarity of her dialect. Higgins also meets Colonel Pickering, another linguist, and invites him to stay as his house guest. Eliza and her friends wonder what it would be like to live a comfortable life. Eliza's father, Alfred P. Doolittle stops by the next morning searching for money for a drink. Soon after, Eliza comes to Higgins' house seeking allocation lessons so that she can get a job as an assistant in the florist shop. Higgins wagers Pickering that within six months, by teaching Eliza to speak properly, he'll enable her to pass for a proper lady. Eliza becomes part of Higgins' household. Though Higgins sees himself as a kind-hearted man who merely cannot get along with women, to others he appears self-absorbed and misogynistic. Eliza endures Higgins' tyrannical speech tutoring. Frustrated, she dreams of different ways to kill him. Higgins' servants lament the stressful atmosphere. Just as Higgins is about to give up on her, Eliza suddenly recites one of his diction exercises in perfect upper-class style. Though Mrs. Pierce, the housekeeper, insists that Eliza go to bed, she declares she is too excited to sleep. For her first public tryout, Higgins takes Eliza to his mother's box at Ascot Racecourse. Though Eliza shocks everyone when she forgets herself while watching a race and reverts to foul language, she does capture the heart of Freddie Einsford Hill. Freddie calls on Eliza that evening and he declares that he will wait for her in the street outside Higgins' house. Eliza's final test requires her to pass as a lady at the embassy ball. After more weeks of preparation, she is ready. All the ladies and the gentlemen at the ball admire her, and the Queen of Transylvania invites her to dance with the prince. A Hungarian phonetician, 
Sultan Carpathy, attempts to discover Eliza's origins. Higgins allows Carpathy to dance with Eliza. The ball is a success. Carpathy has declared Eliza to be a Hungarian princess. Pickering and Higgins revel in their triumph, failing to pay attention to Eliza. Eliza is insulted at receiving no credit for her success, packing up and leaving the Higgins house. As she leaves, she finds Freddy, who begins to tell her how much he loves her, but she tells him that she has had enough words. If he really loves her, he should show it. Eliza and Freddy return to Covent Garden, but she finds she no longer feels at home there. Her father is there as well, and he tells her that he has received a surprise bequest from an American millionaire, which has raised him to middle class respectively, and now he must marry his lover. Doolittle and his friends have one last spree before the wedding. Higgins awakens the next morning. He finds himself out of sorts without Eliza. He wonders why she left after the triumph at the ball, and concludes that men, especially himself, are far superior to women. Pickering notices the professor's lack of consideration and also leaves the Higgins house. Higgins despondently visits his mother's house where he finds Eliza. Eliza declares she no longer needs Higgins. As Higgins walks home, he realizes he's grown attached to Eliza. At home, he sentimentally reviews the recording he made the day Eliza first came to him for lessons. Hearing his own harsh words, Eliza suddenly appears in his home. In suppressed joy at their reunion, Professor Higgins scoffs and asks, Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? My Fair Lady was directed by George Kakor. Written by Alan J. Lerner, based on the play by George Bernard Shaw. Produced by Jack L. Warner. Music by Andre Priven. Cinematography by Harry Stradling Sr. Film editing by William H. Ziegler. Production design by Cecil Beaton and uncredited work to Gene Allen. Costume design by Cecil Beaton and uncredited design by Michael Newworth. My Fair Lady starred Audrey Hepburn as Eliza Doolittle. Rex Harrison as Professor Henry Higgins. Stanley Holloway as Alfred P. Doolittle. Wilfred Hyde White as Colonel Hugh Pickering. Gladys Cooper as Mrs. Higgins. Jeremy Brett as Freddie Einsford Hill. Theodore Bickle as Zoltan Carpathy. Mona Washburn as Mrs. Pierce. And Isabel Alassum as Mrs. Einsford Hill. So immediately, now that I'm actually looking at the cast list and the name of the characters, John, uh, we're jumping right into this. I love how all the men have first names, titles, whatnot, and all the women besides Eliza are Mrs. <laughs> You know, mm. and I think I think that's a. Th this is probably we're just gonna jump right into it. Um, this movie is very misogynistic, even though, as I said in the cold open, it tries to poke fun at it, but also it it doesn't do enough to actually drive home that point that misogyny is bad. In fact, I think that this movie praises misogyny and makes it seem fun and lighthearted and like, oh, it's just a joke. It's a fun story. Is it? Is it a fun story? Is this like really what should be the like the 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 anti misogynistic film the 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 movie that drives home the point that misogyny is bad because it does a real shit job at it because I've watched it now twice and it's taking me two times of watching it multiple times you know researching this and reading about it to realize they were trying to comment on misogyny in a critiquing way hmm your thoughts John. I man there's so much and I think you would have to 
dissected and especially when we get to the end i think that is a huge uh, man it's a huge red flag until definitely doesn't seem like they're trying to pull off that message especially with the way the film ends and the film is is so heavily loved and i think we need to also establish that as well is that people love love this movie and this movie is remembered very very fondly and i people even look back and say it's one of the best musicals of all time if not the greatest musical of all time and we'll definitely discuss and debate those claims but it's a film that very much presents Eliza as a strong character. Like I will say that she is a character that has her, her own willpower power and she's definitely trying to be defiant and, and be a very independent woman. And while she definitely asked for Higgins help and assistance to then become a flower girl, she doesn't really, I don't know. She doesn't really know what she's kind of getting herself into. And she's not really thinking about like what that even means as well and then obviously Higgins character he just he's just a fucking asshole he's just such a dick from the very beginning to the movie to the very end and I I just don't know how you could see this movie and think he's a great guy or a good guy or trying to really help her when all he really wants to do is help himself yeah I would call this incel the musical and I I mean that that's that's how I describe it and I like how you brought up that like (laughs) why because he hates women the entire movie he he hates women and like their their love i'm gonna put air quotes their love is not really love he just is like oh i like having the pretty face around and like i feel like she just adds something to my life and that's it nothing love nothing romantic just like oh yeah she's there she's another presence so like that isn't really established so that's a that's pretty bad to me that in the story within the almost three hour runtime of this movie we couldn't establish that like here's some romance between them there's nothing there and then when you bring up the fact that like yeah that she's that eliza is a strong woman that she has some agency she tries to improve herself she she wants to be something she you know says like wouldn't it be lovely or loverly is the correct wording of the i don't know why it's loverly first off i don't know if it's trying to loverly yeah it's like her speech is not it's just not distorted in that way throughout the rest of the movie so yeah yeah doesn't make sense yeah it it doesn't make sense but anyway so yeah you said you say she's a strong character but isn't the last moment and last thing you see her do in this movie is go right back to higgins and be like yeah i kind of do need you because i do need to have all this great stuff in society that i do need to have the house the clothes like yeah this guy freddie who i guess i was falling in love with which again just two scenes that's it we're in love hate that we've talked about that maybe 20 podcasts maybe 30 (laughs) podcast episodes ago at this point that we couldn't stand shit like that and and we're doing this again and the last thing she does is she goes right back and he's like go get me my slippers and you know what she probably did got him his slippers (laughs) well okay if we're gonna dig deep into this then and i think we just have to talk about the ending in detail because what does the ending even mean? It's almost like they're trying to show that Professor Higgins has learned that he can kind of accept women. You know, you see his reaction, which is like filled with joy and love that Eliza's come back. And just hearing her voice in real life is like bringing him life. But the end is clearly just a button joke, right? Like we talked about. <laughs> with many different films ending on like a very kind of prominent button of a joke 
But doesn't that joke just go against his entire progression or what you're trying to show is the progression of his character? Yeah. And maybe it's not that he loves her. And I've seen debate online and, and some things and reviews that I was reading where some people just don't even think that they're going to be a couple. Like some of it, some people believe that this ending is him acknowledging that women have, add value to the world, that they bring him happiness and more than just a face. And that she is acknowledging that he also has a purpose in this world and that he what he's doing is actually helping people. But like, I don't think either of those really comes off from the ending. To me, it's almost like he still refuses to like admit that she's like he still can't even say the words like he can't even say I love you or he can't even really express in his own language, which is what he should be best at because he's so good at saying how bad women are. But he's still, they ended on a joke like that. And I just don't know how to, how am I supposed to take that? Is it, and it feels like it's just there be, to have a laugh at the end and the credits roll. And I, I just don't know how to take that. I just, yeah, it's to cap off this like grandiose, I'm going to put another air quotes, grandiose performance from, from Rex Harrison. This like, it's like, oh, he, he's otherworldly in this film. He really make, gives you something great. Does he? Like, I, I don't think so. And then, Oh my god! It just so it hurts my head. I I can't like well, what why. Do you, what do you take from the end? Like, what does that ending to you even mean? Eliza, th- where the devil are my slippers, and that whole interaction. I think it's meant to be a joke, and I think like again, like it's meant it, that he doesn't learn his lesson. He doesn't learn anything. There is no actual growth. He's just like, yeah, I'm gonna expect that the women are gonna come back to me. Like, yeah, of course, like she would come back to me. Of course, she would want to be part of this life. Of course, she would want this. Of course. She, you know, if I can provide the nice lifestyle for her, because that's all women want. It's materialistic. He, that's, I think that's how he views women as materialistic, because that's how he builds her up. He's like, okay, well, first we just have to give you a nice voice, then we'll make you pretty, put you in a nice dress, and then we'll we'll parade you around the ball, and you're just an object for us. It's not thing we don't teach you anything to say. Like when they are at the races, he just feeds her lines to just repeat over and over again, because that's just. I don't know, but I think it's an, another critique on high society, but it really doesn't like she becomes this blank slate and this like puppet for him that like in the second half of this movie, she really doesn't do much besides sulk in the background. She's, she sings that one show me tune to Freddie, but otherwise she really doesn't have much agency in this movie. Yeah. She goes back and forth with Higgins when she's at Mrs. Higgins's house, his mother's house. But what, but again, like, she does all that to only run back to him for what? Like, I don't, that's the thing is I don't know what she's running back for. I don't know if she's running like that. Like they could have embraced in that moment, but they don't. And so that's where it, for me, it drives home that point that she's not there for romantic love. She's there for materialistic, this like superficial fake love. Well, that's just kind of how the whole film feels in a way too, right? Like the whole film feels materialistic where it, there's just not that much substance where it like you look at the screen and that's in a beautiful restoration. I mean, we just got the 4k remastered on this year and that's the, uh, the version I watched on Apple and I rented it and it looks incredible. Like the film itself visually in the restoration is pitch perfect. It's so sharp. It's one of the like best looking films along with like Lawrence of the Arabia, uh, that we've seen really. And it's just, it's just hollow like this movie is so hollow even to look at it you're like I wish there was even more to like visually look at 
but the film itself is so hollow. Like the characters just refuse to kind of progress. And then the little bit of progression that we get is kind of again at the very end immediately taken away. And then like what is the point of Freddy's character other than just to set up a love triangle? And it's like the filmmakers even know that this love triangle is not going to work out. They know like the audience knows that. Like it's almost like the the filmmakers know that audiences have picked up on these cliches with love triangles that they almost don't even try with Freddy's character. Like they give him a song which some people think is the best song in the entire film which is on the street where I live but I don't get it man I just don't get it yeah I, I want to challenge you on that like this movie looks good because yeah I'm looking at the movie right now I got I looked at the same restoration it's sharp looking but is it really that visually stunning because I think this is actually <laughs> like this is yeah. uh, for a musical like we've had a few musicals to talk to this is pretty bland in terms of what it does it the, the colors are so muted the cinematography does really nothing. I mean, they could do a lot with this. And this looks like this was made in the 40s and 50s. And we're in 64. There's so much more that we can do. And so I don't think that this is actually any... this Visually, this movie, I think, is pretty average, if not below average to me. I think anyone yeah, could I, have done this. Yeah, I totally understand. I In terms of that, I was just kind of really speaking about the restoration and just how crisp and and literally looks like it could have been made years ago like how just crisp yeah perfect the quality looks but yeah in terms of the actual visuals i mean it's a pretty dull looking film especially when we were on the streets and that's definitely supposed to be showing this kind of slum life the dirty kind of slum life of london and that's definitely the point i think the things that i can really credit the visuals for is they really do pack a lot in frame where there's a lot going on in the background like it really does feel like lived in world even though this is definitely all shot on a set they definitely have a lot going on in the background but you are right I'd, I'd wish there was more color I wish there was more movement I wish there's just a lot of what you get out of these films you know I, I want like something bigger and, and punchier and something more expressive I mean even when we look back at it like an American in Paris which is now like our what are we almost like are we beyond a decade now? Yeah, we're beyond. We're, we're almost 15 thir- yeah, years. Yeah, we're 13 years. Yeah, 13 years. <laughs> yeah. So we're we're over a decade beyond that now. And, and even looking back at that and how bright and, and beautiful and colorful it is. And obviously it's Gene Kelly, so you can't really compare him to, uh, you know, Rex Harrison in this. But still, like, it's just, it, it well, should, should like be more. West Side. Like West Side Story. Or even West Side humongous, Story, yeah. Humongous color palette. And for people yeah. to think like that's not like one of the better musicals and like this is I, really makes me want to question what what is good to people. Um, <laughs> and I, I was saying this to John, you know, before we recorded, but I knew that like I might and I know they both listen. My aunt and my grandma are really into My Fair Lady that they love the music. And I saw them after watching the movie and I went, do you like the musical or do you like the movie? Is it and and because there's a clear difference to me of the movie My Fair Lady and the musical My Fair Lady, the musical which I had which I have seen a Broadway production of or at least an off Broadway oh. production of which I did not like when I saw it. I thought it was bland, boring, and way too long winded. Then and then I I literally like scrubbed through the movie. I held up my phone. I know okay on my phone, but I scrubbed through <laughs> the movie and I went, "What's the good part?" Yeah, she's yeah, yeah, like you know, 
the loverly i could have danced all night like those are like fine numbers those are like two three minute long numbers so what about the three hour runtime why do i spend 15 minutes with eliza's dad who really adds nothing to this movie yeah i think he has at least like 40 minutes of the screen like maybe a little bit less maybe i'm exaggerating that but he has so much like screen time so much like music time you know and these numbers that they put so much effort into crafting and making but what does he add to the story besides that oh this one american millionaire thought that living like a slum was so great that i'm just going to give him a bunch of money which defeats the whole purpose of this open-mindedness like i don't want to be part of a high society i'm just going to force it on to you like i don't understand that moment so like so that critique of like musical and movie i think you can like the musical and 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 that and i don't like it but i can understand if others did but then to look at the movie i'm like what like what about the movie really stands out to you it doesn't do anything visually like west side or american in paris numbers are really long the acting is is stunted i mean they were they use audrey hepburn but they don't use her voice and it's bizarre she's just there to be an object really at the end of the day rex harrison just speaks every word that he sings but we laud it at this as this great academy award-winning performance what what are we doing why (laughs) i think one this film was i think it said it had the highest pre-sale tickets ever at the time which just shows how many how much people are just hyped up for this film and probably the love of the musical. People have seen it. Maybe it's toured around the entire country now multiple times and people have just fallen in love with the music and they know the story well enough that, you know, it's just pretty to kind of see it all happening and they love Audrey Hepburn and I think the film is just kind of remembered as well because of that. We have like Audrey Hepburn, who's one of our most like iconic Hollywood stars of all time. And I think people look back at it and they just love Audrey Hepburn and they remember her and all these beautiful dresses and the gowns and they don't really think about the story. They don't really think about the scene between her and, you know, Professor Henry Higgins and how she teaches her like phonetics or phenomenon. Like it just they don't think about that. They definitely are thinking about like how beautiful she was in a costume and how great some of the songs are. And, you know, I think if we were to give the film credit, I do think there's some really great songs here. Like, I just wish that they were performed in a way that was a little more grand, a little bigger, a larger. But, you know, songs like I could have danced all night and wouldn't it be loverly and on the street where I live. And even with a bit, a little bit of luck and, and get me to church uh, or get me to church on time are great numbers. But they just they just feel hollow. Like, it's just if we're not like adding to the story that I just don't think we're really like progressing and moving very much. And for a film that's like almost three hours, it is just way too long. <laughs> yeah. And then the musical numbers that you mentioned, uh, Loverly, I, sh- I, I like that one a lot. And I actually think the staging of that, it, it's cool and it's simple. And, and to me, that's like a good way to start a, a musical is to not go like big and grand extravagant, the first number, but to bring it in subtly. And I like that the way they stage that. But then that's kind of it for me because a little bit of luck, which I'm watching on my iPad right now, the movie, which I've been doing the last couple of times. And like it's been going on for like 10 minutes right now, the scene. And and that's my <laughs> problem is if a little bit of luck and get me to the church on time, eat up so much screen time, eat up so much of the other runtime and don't add anything to the actual main storyline of Eliza. 
that the three hour runtime is like, wow, if I, if you cut a half hour of this, this movie might be more digestible. You might not have these like lapses where I don't like, I don't really need this character. Cause again, like he doesn't like Eliza's father and her barely interact. He doesn't really add like any fatherly insight or any kind of like wickedness to the movie that, that could foil her, that Higgins could battle. He's just there for the comedy and the, and the good time. And then uh, I'm trying to think of another, one of the oh then the other number you brought up uh, on the street where you live, I li- I like that one too. I think it's actually a beautiful number. But what do they decide to do in terms of structuring it and, and and the way they filmed it is they put it low to the ground. They put Freddie between two ferns within the frame. The the ferns are out of focus and it's just him singing and it's just this one long static shot. And it's like you could do so much more. You could have him walking on the street dancing up and down on it ha- like showing how joyful he is like that he's singing about her that, that you can feel it in him in the song but the actual visual of it is so ugh, like again why like why <laughs> like why why was this the creative choice like Kakor, i know he has it in him we've we've seen it we've seen in philadelphia story we've seen in the parts of gone with the wind they were like really strong parts and, and really you know really well crafted but then with this it's, it's just like well, we have the musical. We know it's popular, so let's just film it and have fun with it. And then, even with the 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 race scene, uh, the Ascot racehorse scene, like that, what is that? Like, why why is the <laughs> why is it everyone's wearing black and white? Why is the background is also black and white? So everyone blends in. They're all just singing in this one monotone voice, and we're gonna sing about the race course today. And this is gonna be fun. Honestly, <laughs> I know in terms you of like songs, I, that's probably one of the worst songs. But visually, I think that's like one of the most interesting parts of the movie. I I honestly think, and I wrote this in my notes that I think this whole movie could have been in black and white because there's so little color in the actual film. It's it's mainly like grays, whites, and black, and especially when we're in like the London streets, and that's definitely the point. And then when we go into high society and to Rex's house, like. We're getting some color, but it is not at all like the musicals that we're used to at all. His it is office still, is like browns. Yeah, like browns it's still and very dull. So I'm like, you might as well just make this film black and white and just like mess around. I just think of an American Paris and the scene that's like the black and white color party. And it's just like that is such a cool visual that you could just play with and mess around in a whole film. And if it, the whole film is going to be this dull, you might as well just make it black and white and mess around with the, the actual contrast and visuals of that. But, yeah, I mean, that song is so boring and ridiculous. And that's probably one of the worst songs in the film. And if we want to like specifically talk about the singing and obviously we have to talk about the controversy and and just how different it is and even it seems misogynistic even behind the scenes obviously this is still the 60s of hollywood and we have audrey hepburn who we should definitely play a little bit of her originally singing because she was on set and she was originally singing some of this music so we should definitely hear some of that burning above if you're in love show me Tell me no dreams filled with desire If you're on fire, show me Here we are together in the middle of the night Don't talk of spring, just hold me tight Anyone who's ever been in love will tell you that This is no time for a chat Haven't your lips 
Longed for my touch. Don't say how much. Show me. Show me. But that is not used in the original film. Her voice was then replaced by Marnie Nixon. So at the time, she's a very iconic singer who's who's stood in for a lot of different stars and and different vocal performances and musicals. But there's this weird kind of like history behind this where the studio itself with Warner Brothers trying to kind of hide whether this was actually Audrey Hepburn singing and they kind of like said well yes it, it was and then you know more and more of the truth came out until most of it was really not Audrey Hepburn at all and then on the other side you have Rex Harrington who's it's just completely singing the songs right like he's not even dubbing his own voice he's on set singing his music which i found I say singing very loose that's the loose term singing which we'll we'll definitely talk about that but i want to read this quote from james powers from the hollywood reporter which is a a, a quote from his review uh from 1964 after the premiere So James Powers from The Hollywood Reporter said, Finally and initially and basically, there is the sound by Francis J. Sheed and Murray Spivak. It is, or was, at the New York preview, six-track stereo. Whatever it is heard in, it will be good because the words are clear and the levels are good. Harrison created an innovation doing his singing live, instead of to playbacks. It seems to give a ferocity and drive to his performance, and it must have set up a formidable technical problem. Their solution was worth it. Miss Hepburn's singing voice is provided by the gifted Marnie Nixon, and it is a wonderful meeting of talents. So I wanted to read that because clearly people are praising this. People are establishing that this is not Hepburn's voice, but they're also praising Harrison's on-set live performance, which is like, Audrey Hepburn gave an onset live performance, but no one gives a fuck because the producers deemed her voice not worthy and deemed that she couldn't reach the high notes. She just didn't have that great of a singing voice, which, as you heard from our clip, I don't really think is true. I just think they wanted the best of the best for the voice. They didn't want any like deters uh, to kind of bring the film down. But anyway, that was a long rant. Ben, what do you think about? Well, we'll start with Harrison. What do you think about the the live singing in quotes, as he said? Yeah, I mean, it's just spoken word poetry, which I feel like, who did I comment on that? Like, I, I hate that. I hate when it's just spoken word. There, there was some movie uh, that we talked about recently. Probably where, Gigi, it, right? Oh, yeah, Gigi, which, again, <laughs> was a Learner in Low musical. So by George, I've got it. I know why I hate these movies. I just don't like Learner in Low. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yes, I I hate spoken word singing like like that. That's just passable. You know how much fucking talent there is in this world that would kill to be on Broadway. That would kill to be in these movies to sing to give really great performances. And Rex Harrison just bastardizes it. And you know he said because uh, I found something else about it that he declined to do you know re-recording the musical numbers and and doing it live because he never talked his way through the songs the same way twice. You're not fucking jerry garcia where you're, you jam <laughs> and, and, and it's all different you're you're a paid actor just sing it and do it twice like this isn't anything that should be that difficult it seemed also that rex harrison was just a prima donna diva the entire <laughs> production and made all these different crazy demands like he thought he was better than this and better than that you know i really don't get it like yeah like i guess people really liked him on broadway which another high society thing High Society was only going to watch Broadway, which I, I brought this up in West Side Story, that like these movies made it accessible 
from you know middle lower class people to be able to see a lot of these productions to who don't live in new york who don't live in london who don't live even in chicago to like see this on a theater production and all and so this makes it widespread makes it easier to consume and oh my god yeah so rex harrison really bothered me in that regard like it's cool that they did like wireless recording and and the technology they did to pull that off i i really commend the filmmakers for that and the audio engineers for doing that like that that's a cool feat but then yeah like to then take audrey hepburn and to to kick julie andrews out of she was the original one on broadway to kick her out because you because they deemed her oh she's not going to be the same not going the star power to bring in audrey hepburn only use audrey hepburn to have a a weird cockney accent and then just sit, to speak very proper and just speak so <laughs> low and like yeah because you're a woman that's how we're going to box you in we don't really want you to say much besides to sit there look pretty speak proper and not bring anything to the conversation and so like that's even like very like disgusting and misogynistic but the fact that they didn't want julie andrews they said get out of here we don't want you who then i mean spoiler she goes on to win for mary poppins in the same year in a um in a really great performance and i do want to talk about that when we talk about the oscars it is is a slap in the face to audrey hepburn to other women who could have been in the role could have given like really great performances and they use Marnie Nixon, who was Natalie Wood's uh, vocal replacement in West Side Story, who again, like they took, they use Nat- they take Natalie Wood and like throw her out the window, like oh, don't need you, don't need your singing voice. So they use Marnie Nixon, who even herself, like, why does she get no credit? Why do we never hear more about her? Why, why couldn't she do the roles? Why couldn't she act? Was she not pretty enough for you? You know, what was? She, did she not have the right acting chops for you, Jack Warner? I don't know. Maybe she could have. I went on a long wooden rant right there. I don't even know what the original point was, but like that, <laughs> I just, it, they, it really bothered me. I, and I, and I, I, from way you're setting up, like it really does bother me how they use these characters. They use these actors to Rex Harrison. You can go be a diva. Everybody else, especially women. Shut up. You know, there's, there's a lot of points that you, you kind of presented there. And I think you're exactly right in most of them. And I definitely agree with you. And, the Marty Nixon thing is she needs to be acknowledged just because she's such a prominent part of this movie and who's not even really credited at all. And Hepburn obviously is remembered as being a great actress and she really is. I mean, she gives a good performance here. I just wish she had kind of more to work with, but I'm glad you brought up the Cockney accent because we need to talk about that because the first, I don't know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes of this movie are her using that voice and her intentionally going like beyond she is giving the performance that like julie andrews probably gave on broadway but just on screen and what i mean by that is that she's using the same level of loudness and speaking but on film and screen and usually when you hear broadway performers talk or, or talk about their performance it's like i yes being on broadway you have to project you have to be loud and boisterous for everyone in the audience and it's almost like they just took that and then brought it to this film and it is so her speaking and it's not even just the accent because the whole film and i'll definitely get get to that and accents and the ethics of this film in general her cockney accent is so obnoxious and i understand for anyone who's listening and it's like that is the point that is the whole point of the movie and i would agree yes i get that that is the point but it is literally like 
nails on a chalkboard. And it's not even because of the accent. It's because she's always screaming. Every fucking sentence she has to say is always screaming and out of like anger and passion. And I guess that's why people love it. And I guess that's why people think it's funny. But to me, that came off as so frustrating and irritating in a way that I'm like, I hate Eliza Doolittle. And it's not because of her accent. It's because of this performance. (laughs) Like, it is so obnoxious. And it's definitely probably the way it was intentionally, you know, the way it was intentionally intended. And definitely they were trying to go for this big, boisterous and like loud woman. And I think that's why people love the performance. So I I just I'm caught in this weird middle ground where I'm like, I think that's why people love it. But that's why I hate it. <laughs> like, it's like this <laughs> weird in between. I, I don't know, man. I don't know. What did you think of her Cockney accent and the way it was portrayed in the, in the opening like 30 minutes or so? Yeah, I mean, it, it's even more because right now we're the, what I'm watching. It's like an hour into the movie and <laughs> um, and she's still in the Cockney accent phase. So it's like, oh do, you, do you spend all this time? And it is really annoying. It's kind of, I don't know. I don't think it's anything like that, like significant or that special. I mean, it it's pretty crazy that they make Audrey Hepburn, you know, they take away a lot of her beauty and like, and I think it's because they just don't give her makeup. And so like, we're so used to seeing this beautiful figure. And so to see her just, as is is great but then having that accent you're just like oh nails on a chalkboard please stop i think they just don't make her like dirty and gross enough like even in the opening scenes where they meet each other and higgins is kind of like disgusted by her i'm like this woman is beautiful like you cannot hide you can put a yeah. smear of dirt on her face but it's bullshit it's fucking bullshit like <laughs> it's so easy to see how gorgeous this woman is like yeah it, it's frustrating and that's just kind of how i felt this entire movie it's just really really frustrating yeah and i, I wanted gotcha. to i wanted to talk about uh the ethics of my fair lady and specifically when it comes to accents And the way this kind of film depicts accents and, you know, we're Americans, so we have a lot of accents here in the United States and so do the British and the Cockney accent is very is depicted in this film as being very low class. It's depicted as being someone who's poor, has a Cockney accent, they're uneducated, they don't know that much about the world and they're very much not respected. Okay, and. That is that's fine. If that's the way the film wants to kind of present this, that is totally fine. If that's how they're looking at it and saying this is how it was back in the day, this is just how it was. That's totally fine. But it's now 1964 and you're making a film that the entire plot revolves around changing this woman's accent. So, my girlfriend, very long-time girlfriend, love love my gal. She's a speech pathologist. Right. So she's very much focused on language accents. Her whole day today is spent helping kids, you know, pronounce words, understand what they're reading, you know, comprehension. So I really wanted to get her point of view and not just from the science that, you know, Higgins used in this film, which it which seemed very accurate from the research that I did, the science and the kind of tools that he's trying to use to teach her. While they're not really accurate in fixing the Cockney accent, they're accurate in terms of these were procedures that people were actually trying to do. These were kind of the notes and a lot of accuracy when it comes to that point of view. But 
I wanted to read from uh, the American Speech and Hearing Association because I wanted to talk about accents and particularly bring up the ethics of this film. So let me read this little bit here. Accents, regional, foreign, or non-native, are not a communication disorder. Accents are a natural part of a spoken language and every person has accents. Accent and dialects are intimately tied to identity and community. Language plays an important role in socialization and sharing cultural information, and different language variations are invaluable in strengthening and communicating different cultural identities. So I wanted to read that, not as some political statement of how this film is wrong and and out of date and, and shouldn't have done this, but the whole premise of this movie is to show that her accent is wrong or his her accent she should be down in this lower class because of the accent or because of the accent it's then associated that she is a part of the lower class or you know is is broke or is uneducated you know there's so many things that they put on her and I just laughed to myself thinking like how many people that still have a cockney accent like what do they think about this movie like how do they look at Doolittle's character and how she is basically trained to lose this accent and then she can be rich and successful. So, you know, I think people could listen to this and that love this movie and they'd be like, well, these are just some woke wankers who just want to like preach about how this movie is is just not woke enough for them. You know, and I think we've watched a lot of movies that are very offensive that we can still find a lot to love about them. But when the whole movie revolves around this, it is so hard to ignore. And the whole movie is basically saying that this accent and it's almost like if you were to make an American film and it's like you have like a southern belle who has this like southern sweet accent and she meets a wrist like an a rich aristocratic New York man and he's like well you cannot talk like that up in here you know like you have to talk like a very strict New Yorker or you will never fit in and it's just like that people would laugh that out of the room like that would never happen And I'm sure there's other examples where there's similarities to it, but I want to just at least go on a rant about the ethics of My Fair Lady and when it comes to accents and, oh man, yeah, I think I think that was a great point. I think I think it's a really good thing to bring up and talk about that because I think that connects to my issue with another issue I have. I have many issues with this movie and Rex Harrison and Higgins' character is he talks about the English English language as being this great thing it's so romantic it's beautiful and it's the best language there is but it's not really considered that around the world i think a lot of people poke fun at the english language they poke fun at how weird it is how we spell things how there are so many words that are similar in terms of how they sound and the phonetics of it and so to try and like make this whole story and i i don't again like it's one of those things where oh yeah we were trying to make fun of it with henry higgins character that like, he'd be the person to think that the english is the best thing in the world and blah 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 blah, blah. it's like yeah but that's not what comes across what comes across is you meet this whole musical number where a group of english people were like yeah like why can't the everyone like talk like the english why isn't the english language like praise more and like i'm gonna you know i'm gonna try and like not have my he like points out different people's accents, which they all sound the same. And they're like, oh, how dare you think that I have such an accent when I'm so proper and blah, 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 blah. And uh, it's to so the ethics of that, the morality of like the English language is better, is very off. It's off color. It it feels like 
racist in a way. Like, I don't know who it's racist <laughs> to, to like the rest of the world. But there's so much more beauty in other languages. I, th- I find other languages to be more beautiful, to have more to it. There's the, I, I want to say creativity, the, the mystique behind it is so much more intriguing to me than just us conversion, conversing in the English language. And you're right also with the fact that today, if I was to say to somebody in the South, like, hey, your your accent is so bad, I wouldn't like put you in society, like high society. I, I wouldn't date you. I wouldn't, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Think, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare think about it, like marrying you type of thing is so wrong. It, it you would be laughed at. It, it it's ridiculous, and uh, and I, again, like it adds to the point of like Henry Higgins is like not a great character. So it's like, why do we care so much about it? Why is such an emphasis that this was a great role when Rex Harrison just speaks his way through it? Yeah, there's. I found this uh, writing professor who kind of wrote about this movie and. Uh, he goes by just Mr. Badger. It's like a blog online. Uh, but I thought it was really interesting because he wrote this little statement that says, there may not be a single word that Professor Higgins hasn't heard, but in his exhaustive study of language, he has somehow managed to forget what language is actually for. The master of phonetics can teach the Cockney flower girl to speak like a princess, but he cannot even tell her that he loves or needs her. So like the whole point of this character is to help this woman and in quotes help this woman because he's deeming that as help and the film is deeming that as help and society at the time I guess is deeming that as what a woman needs especially a woman with a cockney accent in lower class but do the filmmakers know this like do they know that like they created a character who is so inept that he himself teaches language the understanding of language but is so bad at communicating himself and I guess that is kind of part of the joke that's part of the bit, but that is so unsatisfying for a film and a character in a film. And especially to, to end the film in that way where he's just a pompous asshole who can't even acknowledge his love for her at the end. He just gives a demand for his slippers, which very in random. In s- Sell the Musical. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's one other thing that I wanted to bring up too, which is the bet itself within the movie, and and this as more just a storytelling device. You know, there's this whole, and I think that a lot of people look back in this movie and, and what they know about My Fair Lady and what they remember is, yeah, there was a bet that was made that they can make this lower class, this Cockney accent woman, and make her proper. The bet, though, is between Higgins and, and Pickering, but they didn't really put, like, money on it. They didn't really put, like, <laughs> hey, like, if I win this, I get this. They were just like, yeah, I could do this. And it's not like Pickering was like, no, you can't. He was like, oh, okay, sure. And so it's just a weird, like, storytelling and plot device and such a memorable thing that it it's not really a bet so like what is it is it just like higgins trying to prove himself which again is a very like i'm a man i can prove myself i can do whatever i want type of thing which i i don't think we need and i don't think it, <laughs> it again like it just it doesn't really add up to the entire movie itself that when they do when he when he's like i did it i figured it out and like everyone congratulate me it's like well i don't think anyone really doubted that you could you're the one who put it up to yourself you're, you kind of bet yourself no one cares if you did it there's no like you know around the world in 80 days there is money on it they bet on it everybody else was betting on it it was kind of like i i'm 
was it recorded in a newspaper in, the, in that movie? I don't really remember too much, but it was it was more like well known and, and widely known. Whereas this is like, yeah, the, I'm just gonna bet this other linguistic guy that I can do it, and it's and gonna be it. great because I did it. I'm gonna celebrate myself like I did it. When really she puts in all the hard work, she's the one that deals with it. He just like tells her do this exercise, and then she's like, oh, the rain in Spain is clearly in the. Pl- I don't know. Maybe I should remember that line. The rain in Spain part. <laughs> But this it's film, just so bizarre. The film heavily reminded me of one of my favorite comedies, or at least the betting aspect of it. And one of my favorite comedies, 1983's Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> and that film is all about a bet. Like, you can look at that film, and it opens and it ends all about a bet. And the bet is against our character. And it's it's very much similar to this film, where the characters are betting against, but, you know, Rex, you know, Higgins thinks he can do this, right? And that's his motivation is that he just wants to prove that he's so great. He's that good of a man. He's that good of... uh, (laughs) He's just that good that he can fully bring this woman into high society. But the film almost forgets about the bet. It almost forgets that this whole thing was about a bet. While Trading Places purposely makes specific jokes about this, and then the whole bet becomes a twist... Uh, on a bet against the Dukes. Like it's this whole inside gag joke that then turns against the people that then made the bet. So you'd expect that Higgins gets some up, like some sort of, you know, kick in the butt that shows that like he should have never even made this bet, that the bet was irrelevant, that he never really needed to do any of these things. Maybe he helped her and maybe she was helped by him in a way, but like we need to acknowledge that this all came from a shitty bet. And that this guy wasn't trying to do anything other than make himself feel good about it. And then by the end, he's still just like, yeah, I'm so good that you're now my princess, but you're still going to retrieve my slippers because that's what you do as a woman. It's it's just crazy, dude. It is so crazy that they end the movie that way. I still can't get it out of my head. Yeah, it, it's it's the flaw of his character. It's the flaw of the writing uh and the misogyny of it and just how bizarre it is that because at the end of the movie, she just comes right back and he, there's no lesson learned. He like I, he doesn't learn anything about it. He's he's just at the end of the movie. He's like, well, like why can't women be more like men? Like why, like men are like the, mo- the more dominant thing that men are, are even better. And then she comes right back to him and, and doesn't prove his point, doesn't like make him feel bad of what he did. It's just like he has that one moment where he's like, oh, I, I liked having her around. I should try and go find her. And like I remember all these like nice things about her. It's not enough. It, it's so, so superficial and and just so unnecessary. Um, man, this movie really brings me down at some points. Is there is there anything that we're missing in terms of what we should be talking about for this movie? Because I really, I really don't know if I have much more to uh, <laughs> to to pontificate about to use a, a proper word, if one would. No, I I think we really hit on all of our major beats and opinions about just how this movie just doesn't work as an actual story. But I think we should end on a slightly positive note and just I think we should both say what is our favorite song in the film. And I will start off and let you think about this a little bit. It is kind of hard because I do love with a little bit of luck. I think the British accent just makes that that musical number very charming and sweet and adorable but there's not there's no other song really in this film that's an earworm like i could have danced all night and it's such a 
powerful and while I don't really think the actual like visual performance is that interesting like she's just kind of like you know happy jumping around this room it's very tight and closed in and not enough dancing and movement but it is such a sweet song it is great composition and it's just a, a fun little bop about how she is so enthralled and enjoyed by her progress and her improvement that she could literally just dance all night it's something that like we could all kind of embrace and understand and relate to and it's a very sweet performance by her so that is my favorite song from my fair lady i really love i could have danced all night but ben what is your favorite song from my fair lady i think my favorite song is and i said it before it's the nicest one and it opened up the movie wouldn't it be loverly i i really liked it i liked you know she's talking about like it would be nice to have all these nice they all say like it would be nice to have all these nice things but yet what's so night what's so beautiful about the way it's staged is that they have all that within their own little society that within this lower class way of life they still have like nice things they still have you know the they all treat each other with kindness they all there's this community aspect whereas when you get to high society it's so cutthroat it's so you know, like you have to be fake. You, you know, no one really likes you unless you have this. You can't be as expressive. You can't say you're 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 blimey arse. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> without like someone fainting. Wait, hold, can we just talk about that for one second? That the woman just faints when she hears <laughs> blimey arse or bl- whatever. She's so, she hears the word arse. She's just like, oh no. Imagine if she saw Tom Jones, dude. Oh, Majesty. <laughs> Where's Tom's <laughs> pussy? <laughs> oh my uh, God! Yeah, that that's a whole that's a whole other podcast that we that we made. <laughs> so listen to that one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I liked "Wouldn't It Be Loverly." I I think that is a sweet little song. But that's the unfortunate thing. There's not enough. Like there, there were so many songs in West Side Story that are so good. There's so many good songs in American in Paris. I know we're gonna hit the next one. We talk about sound of music. There's a lot of great musical numbers. And for this, there's just two or three, maybe four that are like good or, or at least good to like nice to listen to, but nothing that sticks out as like, yeah, like that, that is great. Like that is the song. So this movie is, is, is puzzling. Why, 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 why can we apply to many aspects of this movie? But <laughs> let's see how, what this movie did win at the 37th Academy Awards. But this is a big year. This year, movie making is more important than ever. A hit movie can make an airline. (laughs) 1965 was a big year for the movies. This was the year lovely Julie Andrews made her motion picture debut in a big hit called Mary Poppins. Or... Mary Poppins or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Jack Warner. The 37th Academy Awards were held on April 5th, 1965 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California, and the event was hosted by the one and only Bob Hope. This was the only year in Oscar history where three different films got 12 or more nominations, and that includes Beckett and My Fair Lady, which each received 12, while Mary Poppins received 13. Academy Honorary Award went to William Tuttle for his outstanding makeup achievement for Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. This is the first official makeup award given out at the Academy Awards and an official category for the makeup 
uh, category would not be created for another 17 years uh, from this point. So it's just an honorary award for makeup, hairstyling, and we'll get that in 17 episodes where we will talk about it. Unbelievable that it took them that long. Like what a, what a key component of filmmaking that is just completely left behind. Ridiculous. Best visual effects went to Mary Poppins, Peter Ellenshaw, Eustace Lysett, and Hamilton Lusk. This is Ellenshaw, Lysett, and Lusk's first career Academy Award. So I rewatched Mary Poppins for this episode because I was, as you can tell, what movie I would have voted for for <laughs> this year. Uh, and as you know, we, you talked about the restoration of My Fair Lady and. Disney Plus has a pretty good copy of my Mary Poppins. The compositing of the movie I could see being jarring for like t- compared to today's visual effects. It's 1964, mm-hmm. so the visual effects compositing is pretty weird. But for what they did in that movie, I don't think it's talked about enough. I don't think oh, that people astounding. really. It, it's pretty pretty unreal for for what they did and the amount of special effects that went into it. That I again like I don't think we give that movie enough credit for for what it did for the movie industry and 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 i and especially because it's disney i i don't like it it's pretty remarkable so if you have the time just look at the visuals of my of mary poppins yeah but, i definitely definitely have a uh i think a theory as to why maybe it's not the lead here and, and not the winner but the visual effects are incredible. I, I really love, obviously, all of the uh, hand-painted animation is insane. When they go into, like, the storyboards or the paintings, you know, they, they jump into it and their little bodies, like, shrink into the painting. Like, I love, there's so so much fun that is in that film that you, like, you can even, like, see aspects that are now, like, translated into, like, TikTok. Where, like, yeah. people are using the effects from this movie that are now, like, updated to be so exact and, and incredible on just our little tiny phones. But yeah, it's it's amazing. You're absolutely right. Yeah, um, I think we might have the same theory. So maybe we can talk a little bit as we get to best picture. But anyways, uh, best film editing went to Mary Poppins to Cotton Warburton. This is Warburton's only career Academy Award win. Best costume design color went to Cecil Beaton. This is Beaton's second Academy Award and first of the evening, and it is second time winning in the best costume design category as he previously won for Gigi in 1959. Cecil Beaton was not only a designer but originally started as one of the most well-known British photographers of all time. He frequently photographed for large publications and Queen Elizabeth, which was reportedly his favorite royal person to capture on film, and Beaton was even credited as a night bachelor in 1972 by the Queen for the New Year's Honors list uh, for, his, for his services in design and photography. And one of my favorite quotes by Beaton is, be daring, be different, be impractical, be anything that will assert integrity of purpose and imaginative vision against the play it safers, the creatures of the commonplace, the slaves of the ordinary. Oh, that must have been our Instagram post. I was like, where'd John get that from? <laughs> I had it all in my memory. <laughs> Best of costume design black and white went to The Night of the Iguana to Dorothy Jeekins. This is Jeekins' second and final career Academy Award after previously winning for Samson and Delilah from 1949. 
Best Cinematography Color went to My Fair Lady by Harry Stradling. This is Stradling's second and final Academy Award after previously winning for The Picture of Dorian Gray in 1946. Stradling was the cinematographer Pygmalion in 1938, which is the film in which My Fair Lady is based off of. So a little history here we have of Harry Stradling. I would love to go back and see Pygmalion and see maybe how he like kind of took from that, maybe evolved. You know, that's such a fascinating thing where you get to see a creator make something almost twice. Even though it's not the same exact thing, My Fair Lady, it's definitely it's its own thing. But interesting to see someone have that connection almost 20 Almost 30 years, I should say, later. Best Cinematography Black and White went to Zorba the Greek to Walter Lassley. This is Lassley's only Academy Award win, and his Oscar actually melted during a fire at Christiana's restaurant on the night of January 1st, 2012. I will not let my Oscar burn in a fire or get melted. (laughs) Which just reminded me, did you see it happen one night Oscar was found? What? Did you see that? Yeah. No. Hold on. I'm yeah. doing a Google search. What do you, <laughs> you mean? It? Dude, it's crazy. Wait till you where see we... where they found it. <laughs> oh, Oscar Oscar found. Oh, wait, what? How did How did you not send this to me earlier? What? A special <laughs> Oscar came in 19. It was found in Kentucky Pantry. What? <laughs> wait. Yeah, I just saw this yesterday, I think. Is placed in a donation box to a food pantry in Covington, Kentucky. The Oscar was included in a box for Be Concerned, a community food pantry that also operates a thrift shop. What? How? Yeah. How is this not more? <laughs> there more news about this. I, I, dude, I have no idea. I felt the same way. It was like at the very end of October, I think, when that was found. Like yeah, four or five days ago, and and there's been like no one talking about it. It's it's very weird. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely bizarre. It was a special Oscar given for, wait, but who is the Oscar for? Like which award? That's what I don't see. I think but it was they, just best uh, picture, but it says it was like given for Clark Gable. I don't really know what that yeah, means. It, well, it says that it was given for the Clark Gable film. So that's just the way like. I don't oh, know. That's really written. that's really cool, though. I, I would like to now. I, I have think it's to just the best picture award. Maybe, yeah. That's that is cool. All right, back to um, uh, the <laughs> podcast, though. Best art direction uh, color went to My Fair Lady. Art direction by Gene Allen and Cecil Beaton. Set decoration by George James Hopkins. This is Allen's first and only Oscar. Beaton's second of the evening and third career Oscar. And Hopkins, second of four career Academy Awards. So, Ben, is there anything else to add? I think the art direction and the costuming are my favorite parts of My Fair Lady. I think the art direction, like I said, like the sets are filled with a lot. And while I don't think the sets are very bright and colorful, I don't think the the art direction here by Gene Allen and Cecil Beaton were really told to be bright and colorful. They weren't told to bring in primary colors. They were definitely told by either Warner himself, Jack Warner, or by Kukor himself to make it kind of duller and more British and more, I don't know, more realistic, I guess. The film is definitely trying to go for a more realistic color palette. Uh, anything else you want to add on My Fair Lady's art direction? I would have given it to Mary Poppins. <laughs> 
Best Art Direction Black and White went to Zorba the Greek. Art Direction and Set Decoration by Vasilis Photopolis. This is Photopolis' only Academy Award. What an incredible name. Like, that man was meant to take <laughs> photos or be in the film industry. Photopolis. Uh, maybe Photopolis. he changed it. Photopopolis. Photopopolis. <laughs> okay, what we got here? Best sound went to George Groves for My Fair Lady. This is Groves' second career Academy Award, and he previously won for Sayonara in 1957. George Groves recorded the sound from The Jazz Singer in 1927, a a groundbreaking motion picture which revolutionized the film industry and sound in the motion picture and sound in cinema. The star of the film, Al Johnson, dubbed George the quiet little Englishman and insisted that he alone record his pictures. In recording the sound for The Jazz Singer, Groves became the first ever production recordist. And as we see, he's got a long history in sound of film, even back to the very start in the first motion picture with sound. But we even talked earlier in the film how this was a film that was presented with uh, six different channels in stereo, which is huge. Most of the films that we see now are like 9.1 mastered, sometimes even more depending on the theater. But we also have the first use, at least recorded use, that we know in history of using wireless microphones on set. So there's definitely a lot of value that we've got out of this film in terms of like some technical elements, and especially when it came to sound and how much we're kind of progressing in sound and in technology. But, you know, using all these wireless microphones, you wish we would have a, a film that's a little more dynamic, a little more, you know, fast paced, a little more dancing, you would think. But you would, me. you would think. You would absolutely think that. But yeah, it, it's a pretty incredible feat, so I do have to commend it for that. Moving on to best sound effects, this one went to Norman Wanstall for Goldfinger. This is Wanstall's only Academy Award. This is the first Oscar won by a James Bond film, and six times a Bond film has won an Academy Award. John, name them Gold all right now. Don't, don't look finger. it up. Um, oh, man. No Time to Die, one best song. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Skyfall, one best song. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. So that's so three, then. That's three. So, so there's three, three more. more. Mm-hmm. Fuck. More recently. More recently? Yep. You're missing two for more recently. Oh, No Time to Die. Uh, Best is it best sound mixing? No, because they combine the two categories. So what's the? No, nope. no, it's not. Did it not nope. win? What? No, Tell not. me. So writings on the wall won for Spectre. Oh, Skyfall what? also won for best sound editing. Oh. And we'll talk about this in the next episode. But Thunderball won for best special best special visual visual effects. Mm. That's one I have to go back and watch again. I haven't seen yeah. that one in a long time. And that's when so, it gets like late sixties and weird, real weird in the Bond franchise. Yeah, and for the just for those who are you know tracking all this stuff, um, so I would assume the next Bond film might win Best Song again. Now this will be the could be the fourth Bond film, and whenever they do release that, we know it's going to happen. Uh, you know, we'll just we'll keep an eye out for it. It's going to be a while. It's going to be like four plus years probably. <laughs> Best scoring of music adaptation or treatment went to Andre Priven's My Fair Lady. 
This is Previn's fourth and final Academy Award win, and he is one of the few composers to have accomplished the feat of winning back-to-back Oscars and one of only two to have done it on two different occasions. So we have the best music score of a musical picture, and we have 1958 Gigi and 1959's Porgy and Bess. And then later on in the 60s, we have Best Score Adaptation or Treatment, which is 1963's Irma La Doce and 1964 My Fair Lady. Yeah, so I highlighted uh, two other movies that were nominated in this category for music adaptation or treatment. We have Mary Poppins, which, you know, is a, is a phenomenal score. And, and probably at the time if I was living in there and I was in a upper, higher upper class society and maybe not as into the music of the next one, maybe, yeah, I would have voted for that one. But then A Hard Day's Night was nominated, the Beatles movie, for Best Music Adaptation and Treatment. And I'm kind of like, why wouldn't that have won? That is so popular. Like, they were (laughs) at their peak. At their peak, they were reaching, you know, well, actually, the start of their peak at that time. Like, that's how popular the Beatles were. And... You're not, and it doesn't win the award because everyone just wants to fucking jerk off My Fair Lady and and love it so much. Like that, ah, oh, so frustrating. That, that is so frustrating that those two movies are there, and then My Fair Lady wins over those. When I'm, I think we can argue that um, that the that at least a Hard Day's Night and a lot of songs of Mary Poppins are way will will stand the test of time over anything for My Fair Lady. I think there might be a reason, and I think that comes down to who is nominated for the Beatles uh, and for Hard Day's Night, which is George Martin, who is a music producer, doesn't really have much association at all with film and film musicals or film you know, music adaptations or really anything in the film industry. It's mainly a music producer, so I just feel like this is political nonsense of, yeah, we know Priven. He's been here many a times. He's already won multiple times. He's a recognizable, recognizable face in the film industry, and people probably do not know who George Martin is. They may know the Beatles a lot, but maybe they're like, uh, George Martin, He's he doesn't get any credit in my book. He's just a music producer, which... It sounds ridiculous to say that's not my opinion, but that's my guess as to why they wouldn't. He's only you know, just one of the greatest the creative musical <laughs> yeah. producers to ever, ever. Have w- <laughs> yeah. walk the face of the earth. But <laughs> that's neither here nor there. And the next interesting thing, and I want to go back to the Mary Poppins aspect, uh, because for the best music score, substantially original category, Mary Poppins won that. But that went to Richard M. Sherman and Robert B. Sherman. So. Mary Poppins is nominated twice for Adaptation or Treatment and also Original and two different composers <laughs> for each. What the fuck is going on, Academy? Like, what what are we doing? So I guess it, it wins for the for the next one. Bizarre. Uh, so a little note about Sherman. The Sherman Brothers are the first. Uh, they won their first of two Academy Awards of the evening. Uh, some of the Sherman Brothers' best-known songs were incorporated into the live-action and animation musical films, including Mary Poppins, The Happiest Millionaire, The Jungle Book, The Merry Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Snoopy Come Home, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, The Slippers and the Rose, and Charlotte's Web. And their most well-known work, however, remains It's a Small World After All, written for the theme park attraction of the same name. According to Time Magazine, it may be the most publicly performed song in history. So these guys win, you know, 
well more well known for it's a small world after all it's a small world clearly but the fact that like this weird thing is going on and i it's bizarre that is so bizarre and i i'm just like picking up on that it was nominated in both categories super weird super weird we have two separate musical score categories i don't get it at least mary poppins once but fuck a hard day's night should have won that man I, while you're talking i was like there's got to be an explanation like what is it and i man there's definitely an explanation out there somewhere but i cannot figure out why it could even possibly be nominated twice how is that even possible and of course when you try to do any sort of google search everything comes up about mary poppins returns which no one gave a flying f about let me just say that yeah moving on to best short subject cartoon went to the pink fink best live action short subject went to casal's conducts 1964 Best Documentary Short Subject went to Nine from Little Rock. Best Documentary Feature went to Jacques Cousteau's World Without Sun. The Best Song went to Chim Chim Cheree from Mary Poppins. Music and lyrics by Richard M. Sherman and Robert B. Sherman. Chimney, chim, chimney, chim, chim, cherry. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim, chimney, chim, chimney, chim, chim, cheroo. Good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Or blow me a kiss. And that's lucky too. Now, as the ladder of life has been strung, you might think a sweep's on the bottom most rung. Though I spends me time in the ashes and smoke, in this old wide world there's no happier bloke. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim cherry. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim cherry. Good luck we're above when I shake hands with you. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim cherry. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim cherry. Good luck we're above when I shake hands with you. This is the Sherman Brothers' second Oscar of the evening, and the song was inspired by one of the drawings of a chimney sweep created by Mary Poppins screenwriter Don DeGrotti. When asked about the drawings by the Sherman Brothers, DeGrotti explained the ancient British folklore attributed to sweeps and how shaking hands with one or touching their sleeve could bring a person good luck. In their 1961 treatment, the Sherman Brothers had already amalgamated many of the P.L. Travers character in the creation of Bert. So, Ben, is Chim Chimmery your favorite song from Mary Poppins? Do you think there's a better song from Mary Poppins that should have been nominated and should have won? So, I really like Let's Go Fly a Kite. I think that's a really, the, the music and the movement of it. But as someone who, I play guitar, I play bass. I'm, I'm, I have some music talent, I like to say, uh, and boast about myself a little bit. And when I was thinking about like why Chim Chimmery stands out, like why is a, a song that would win bet like best song, like why for the movie? And then I thought about it, I was like, wow, it's a really like complex and like moving song and really like deep and emotional in terms of the actual music itself that I think like everything I, I like to think a lot of things to be made into metal songs, but that would be like a really interesting like metal song and just like really symphonic and huge 
and loud, like really big orchestration behind it that uh, I think that it, it has a lot of like movement and I really like that song a lot. So I, I agree with that. Chim Chimery uh, should should have won for this. And, it, and it's brought up throughout the movie too. So it, it's mm. definitely a fun one. But I, I like Let's Go Fly a Kite a lot. What about you? Do you like any particular Mary Poppins songs? Oh, man. Chim Chimery might be one of my favorite. I mean, obviously, A Spoonful of Sugar is, is a classic. I love her, you know, unpacking everything and dancing around the house to that song. But I think there's there's like a happiness to Chim Chimery and then there's like the sadness to that song as well. That melodic, like where so he's kind of alone. Sadness. Yes. He's just alone on the roof kind of singing about that and almost like singing about being alone. And it's like a very touching moment in that film where you're like, wow, this is uh this is deeper than just a, like a kid's film that you'd expect. And they definitely respect their audience a lot more than even uh, my fair lady, I would say. So <laughs> not wrong. Best foreign language film went to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow from Italy. The film consists of three short stories about couples in different parts of Italy, and it starred Sophia Loren. I love movies that are like different stories interwoven and 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 how they they could be told differently. So I, I really want to watch this movie because the I like the idea of short stories in one film, and I'm sure there is some connection between all three. Yeah, and it's such a great name, Sophia, Sophia Loren there, too. Like, that's just sounds delicious. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to Beckett from Edward Anholt from Beckett by Gene Anul. This is Anult's second career win, and he previously won for The Panic in the Streets from 1950, an award he shared with his ex-wife, Edna Anholt. This is the only win for the film Beckett out of a total of 11 nominations. So interestingly, we have Dr. Strangelove in this. We have Mary Poppins and we have My Fair Lady. And none of those win uh, and Beckett does. So I don't know what what that says, but the voting uh, process, but I'm going to say it's interesting. Moving on to best story and screenplay written directly for the screen went to Father Goose to S.H. Barnett, Peter Stone, and Frank Tarloff. This is all their first Academy Award wins, and the film starred Cary Grant in his second-to-last film role ever. Best Supporting Actress went to Leela Kadrova for Zorba the Greek as Madame Hortense. This is Kadrova's only Academy Award win, and Zorba the Greek was her first film role. And she won the Tony Award for Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical for the same role in the musical version of Zorba the Greek. Best Supporting Actor went to Peter Ustinov for Top Copy as Arthur Simon Simpson. This is Ustinov's second Academy Award in the Best Supporting Actor category, and he previously won for Spartacus from 1960. Best Actress went to Julie Andrews for Mary Poppins as Mary Poppins. This is Julie Andrews' first and only Academy Award win, and she would go on to be nominated for The Sound of Music in 1965 and Victor slash Victoria in 1982. Casting for the film adaptation of My Fair Lady began in 1962. Jay Lerner hoped for Andrews to reprise her role from the musical version, but Warner Brothers studio head Jack Warner decided Andrews lacked sufficient name recognition. 
The part was played by the established film actress Audrey Hepburn, although the bulk of the singing dubbed by Marnie Nixon. As Warner later recalled that the decision was made for a financial purpose, stating that, in my business, I have to know who brings people and their money to the cinema box office. Audrey Hepburn has never made a financial flop. Andrews later reflect that she understood her experience on Broadway was, in quote, was within a very small pond, but wished she had been able to record her performance for posterity. In 1963, Andrews began work in the titular role of Disney's musical film Mary Poppins. While Disney had seen her performance in Camelot and subsequently offered her the role, Andrew initially declined because of a pregnancy, returning to London to give birth, but Disney firmly insisted, saying, We'll wait for you. After the birth of her daughter, she received a call from P.L. Travers, author of Mary Poppins' book series, who told her, Well, you're much too pretty, of course, but you've got a nose for it. As a measure of sweet revenge, as Poppins songwriter Richard M. Sherman put it, Andrews closed her acceptance speech at the Golden Globes by saying, Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. So, Ben, what a lovely dig that Julie Andrews gets to give, gives yep. to uh, just, you know, present on a stage. And there is such a magic in Oscar moment where you get that stage, you have the opportunity to say whatever you want and the slight, subtle shades that these performers give. And it's always actors, you know, the people so that good. win the technical awards, they're like so honored to be here. Like I work so hard. Thank you. This is honoring my team, but it, all the pettiness always comes from actors. They're all, <laughs> always the most yep. petty and they know exactly what to say just enough to get that message out there and to get the press going crazy, man. Like yeah. wild. I, I love it. I thought, I, th- I think it's great that, that she did that and kind of leads into my little theory. And I think that you share this theory. So we'll start bringing the buds about Jack Warner's involvement and how Jack Warner influenced this Academy Awards and Jack Warner's fingerprints on everything. Uh, and we'll get to a little bit more. So I just want to bring that name up. But Walt Disney, on the other hand, was like, wait a second. She is a really good talent. I could use her. I think she'd be great for this movie. And the fact that he's like, we'll wait for you, especially at a time when she's pregnant, she's giving birth. And to give that kind of, I don't know, human kindness to somebody as they are giving birth <laughs> to another human is pretty remarkable versus the misogynistic approach of, oh, we don't need Julie Andrews, even though she's good on Broadway, we need the beautiful Audrey Hepburn, who we're just going to replace her voice anyways, says a lot about Jack Warner. And if I do remember this a little a little bit, there was a movie that we reviewed a long time ago called The Broadway Melody, which had a character called Jack Warner, which was kind of riffing and making fun of Jack Warner. So, hmm, things that make <laughs> you go, hmm. 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 Anyways, moving <laughs> on to Best Actor. This one went to Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady as Professor Henry Higgins. This is Harrison's only Academy Award win and second nomination. He was nominated for Best Actor for Cleopatra from 1963. Uh, when Rex Harrison accepted his Academy Award for the movie after he kissed uh, Audrey Hepburn, what, like 10 times? Uh <laughs> maybe seven times too many at certain points. He dedicated it to his two fair ladies, Audrey Hepburn and Dame Julie Andrews, both of whom had played Eliza Doolittle with him. Uh, and just another little fun note is Seth MacFarlane, creator of 
Family Guy, modeled the voice of the character Stewie Griffin after Harrison after seeing him in the film adaptation of My Fair Lady, which I know they make fun of My Fair Lady or at least have some gags of it in one episode of Family Guy. But anyways, going back to the Rex Harrison acceptance, um, he was pretty... He was like on the top of the world when he accepted this award. It's I would tell people to go watch this and uh, let us know what you think uh, at worthy submissions at gmail.com or tweet at us, find us on Instagram, worthypod, uh, because it's pretty, pretty handsy, I would say, with uh, Audrey Hepburn. And I don't know. She kind of has to take it. She's pretty, on the center stage, man. She tries yeah. to be elegant about it, but I think it's pretty clear to read her face that she's very uncomfortable <laughs> yeah and also just you know other actors who acted uh that year we have peter sellers uh from dr strangelove who played one two three different characters in that movie of anthony quinn who we have peter o'toole richard burton who probably did way better jobs than uh than rex harrison so i think that me and you probably would agree that we would have given the, that we would have voted for peter sellers unless i'm a little mistaken with you john but if i had to guess i would think you would have voted for peter Steller, sellers for dr strange love absolutely i mean yeah. even <laughs> one of those performances from dr strange love is worthy i mean he's so so damn funny in that movie and yeah, i'm sure we'll talk more about that movie uh next yeah maybe we will Best director went to George Kakor for My Fair Lady. This is Kakor's first and only Academy Award win out of five total nominations. Kakor was replaced as one of the directors of Gone with the Wind from 1939, and he went on to direct The Philadelphia Story, Gaslight, Adam's Rib, Born Yesterday, A Star is Born, and he also spent a week as a director for The Wizard of Oz, but did not film anything. However, though, he suggested several makeup and costume changes for the characters that made the final production. I think one of his critiques for the makeup and costume was not making Dorothy blonde and making her a brunette. Um, Interesting. But otherwise, I don't really know much what else he did for that production, but... Kakor uh, sprinkled throughout Oscar history, uh, and especially with Gone with the Wind is when we talked about him a lot. He's, uh, I, I think he's a fine director, and I think that I, I really don't know like really like what he did for this movie that was so technically great versus, I don't know, Stanley Kubrick for uh, Dr. Strangelove. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think... Me. It's Dr. Strangelove, Robert Stevenson, how visionary Mary Poppins is, you know, pushing the boundary of film and filmmaking and musicals. Yeah, pretty apparent. Dr. Strangelove, I mean, make, making one of the most iconic comedies of American history. Uh, okay. Uh, one of the greatest <laughs> uh, directors in uh, American history. Mm, okay. Uh, skip over him. But Kakor, I mean, we can't, like, deny that Kakor has an insane impact on history. I mean, we, we, Wizard of Oz is still beloved, even though he wasn't like there to film anything. He had a part in it. You know, A Star is Born is a huge deal. It just got remade. Little Women, huge deal. It just got remade. Still a part of our history. People still talk about the Philadelphia story, and Gaslight is still talked about. So he definitely made some very iconic films, but it felt like he was just, you know, he, he just seemed like he just cared about like his relationship with actors, and he liked the facade of like, you know, having dress up with beautiful women and handsome men just to make a production you know make something that's not really flashy but it's there it's presenting the story as as well as the story is written which in this case not very well 
Yeah. Well, maybe his best contribution is making sure that Audrey Hepburn sulked in the background when she was not praised for her work uh, during uh, her, her transformation as Eliza Doolittle. I, I think that was a really good choice. Really funny choice, honestly. Uh, we didn't get to talk about that part. Anyways, moving on to best picture. The nominees are Zorba the Greek, Mary Poppins, Dr. Strangelove, Beckett, and the winner is My Fair Lady 2, Jack L. Warner. So a little bit about Warner for a second. This is Warner's first and only personal Academy Award win. He had not been a producer of a film since East of the River from 1940. He was mainly an executive producer on Warner Brothers films throughout his career. However, after My Fair Lady, he would go on to produce three more films, 1776 from 1972, Dirty Little Billy from 1972 as well, and Camelot from 67. So Warner is co-head of production of Warner Brothers Studios. Warner worked with his brother, Sam Warner, to procure the technology for the film's industry's first talking picture, The Jazz Singer from 1927. After Sam Warner's death, Jack clashed with his surviving older brothers, Harry and Albert Warner. He assumed exclusive control of the company in the 1950s when he secretly purchased his brother's shares in the business after convincing them to participate in a joint sale of stocks. Although Warner was feared by many of his employees and inspired ridicule of his uneven attempts at humor, he earned respect for his shrewd instincts and tough-mindedness. He recruited many of Warner Brothers' top stars and promoted the hard-edged social dramas for which the studio became known. Given to decisiveness, Warner once commented, if I'm 51% right of the time, I'm ahead of the game. In 1943, the studio's film Casablanca won the award for Best Picture. When the award was announced, uh, Halby Wallace got up to accept the award, only to find Jack Warner had rushed on stage with a broad, flashing smile and a look of great self-satisfaction to take the trophy. Wallace later recalled, I couldn't believe it was happening. Casablanca had been my creation. Jack had absolutely nothing to do with it. As the audience gasped, I tried to get out of the row of seats and into the aisle, but the entire Warner family sat blocking me. I had no alternative but to sit down again, humiliated and furious. Almost 40 years later, I still haven't recovered from the shock. So, John, my, and I think your theory as to why My Fair Lady won probably has to do with Jack Warner strong-arming a lot of the voters as the head of, I don't know, one of the biggest film studios in the entire world, and uh, probably convincing a lot of the people who he hires and pays for a lot of their nice things in high society way of Hollywood life, and was like, yeah, you should vote for My Fair Lady so I could win my own personal award. And I don't know. I don't know if it was said that directly, but there's a lot of politic, a lot of uh, a lot of soapboxing, a lot of, you know, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies and slipping people money in the world of politics of the Oscars. And I just think this is very, very fishy that my fair lady comes on top, especially considering, you know, Mary Poppins, much better movie by far and probably a deep rival of Warner is. Walt Disney, who stole Julie Andrews, or actually, I shouldn't say stole, he just realized that there was potential talent there, created something, and she won Best Actress, and you know, My Fair Ladies, Audrey Hepburn, couldn't even get a nomination. 
What do you think, John, about Jack L. Warner and his involvement in the uh, awards voting for the 1964 Academy Awards? Well, I'm very glad that you included everything that you included because it it does paint a picture of someone who is uh, quite mischievous, right? Someone who is definitely backstabbing, who plays a game, always is trying to be one step ahead of someone else. And I think there's a lot of valid criticism to that. I mean, the fact that he convinced his own family to sell stocks in order to take over the company himself is so grimy and disgusting in itself, let alone the quote that you read directly from Wallace, who has just completely rejected the award that he was honored uh, by his 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 fans and by the people that make films every year. And the fact that you know, you can have a creator who's been in the industry for this long who's still pulling these strings like this. And it's like, of course, he's just gaining more and more power and, and popularity as time has gone on. But I think without a doubt, it's Mary Poppins is a much better film in terms of its characters, the story, the music, the look. Like literally everything about that movie, I think, is better than My Fair Lady. Dr. Strangelove, like we mentioned, I think it's one of the most iconic, definitely the most iconic like comedy from the 60s it's one of stanley kubrick's best films in my opinion and it is just astounding it has some so much great performances and it still holds up today and it's social commentary and humor still holds up today and that's very very hard to do while my fair lady i think just doesn't hold up very well at all and my thoughts and obviously i knew some some sus stuff was going on with jack warner i think that was apparent Every time he's involved in the Academy Awards, it feels like there's some weird stuff going on and weird kind of uh, a weird nature to, to it being all about him and, and, you know, having the name of the company itself. Like, that's not enough for you, but whatever. But to me, I was thinking even broader and even more looking back at all the films that we've seen. And when you look at My Fair Lady and you compare it to another musical like The West Side Story or going further back, like, uh, you know. American in Paris they're both better musicals to me and then when you look at a comedy you look at like something like Tom Jones which is only the year before and that is such a funnier film and it does things that it's way more creative it's pushing the boundary of filmmaking a lot more and it's a lot funnier than My Fair Lady in terms of being a comedy but when I was looking at this and especially comparing it to another musical like Mary Poppins such an iconic film and I was really thinking about the two and really looking at the kind of themes, the kind of morality, the kind of genre. They're both musicals, but they definitely... My Fair Lady is definitely a much more serious adult film. That's all about adults. It doesn't have any children at all. It's focused on this woman becoming a, a more sexy, smarter person, according to Higgins' character. But when I look at that and compare it to Mary Poppins, which is it's a film that anyone can enjoy, much like a lot of Disney classics. It's made for children, but it's also open for whole families to go and to enjoy and get something out of. And I think that's definitely the case for Mary Poppins. But Mary Poppins is definitely a, a children's film. It's, it's definitely more of like a children's book. It's more of like a fantasy And then when I think of that perspective and comparing it to every best picture that we've had, it kind of took me down a rabbit hole where I was like, what is the most like childlike film? Like really all of the films that have won best picture, they're very serious or if they're not serious, then there's not really even that much children in it. It's not that much like joyous humor. Like it's, there's not really many films that are like meant for a child to also enjoy. 
And I, I went through the whole list and I was like, there may not even be like one film, like maybe around the world in 80 days, you could call like a child film because it's, but it's not like it requires a lot of knowledge to know the celebrities that are in that film. So it, to me, it was almost like, well, maybe the Academy looked at Mary Poppins and they were like, it's just for kids. Like that's not, that's not a best picture film, but the grace and the elegance of Audrey Hepburn walking into frame with her beautiful pink dress and hat, you know, and falling for a man that is cinema. That is real adult filmmaking. So I, I kind of like, maybe that's where the Academy as a whole was feeling. I don't know, Ben, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I do think it's, it is more of a children's film. But then it also talks about women's suffrage and very, very progressive, I think, for even 64, especially in popular Hollywood. It's about a man who is consumed by his work and realizes he just has to have a little love and, and, and life in his life, a little fun uh, to respect that his children may know better than him. It has a lot to do with that. It has, you know, a lot of the adults are having fun that they can be more than just this dullness in life it it adds more to london compared to my fair lady because it adds more color to it it adds that hey the people that the lower class the chimney sweeps the people who are banging on the street kind of fun and they're nice people and there's stuff to it so i I think there's a lot more than just the, the child aspect of of mary poppins you know i think that and, and, in terms, and in terms of the technical aspects, it does so much. It's so compelling. Uh, man, it's so disappointing. It had 13 nominations. How many movies have 13 nominations that don't don't win best? I mean, I, I guess I could have looked that stat up because I didn't know that for... Um, <laughs> uh, man, what, what, what was the movie from this past year that Benedict Cumberbatch... Oh, Power of the Dog. Yeah. That movie w- w- had 12. But 13 nominations. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Uh, and it still won a bunch of technical stuff. It won for best actress. It won score. I don't know, man. I I would have picked my Mary Poppins. I watched it. And I'm like, this movie really is pretty great. And I don't know if it's a Disney thing. I don't know if it's because it was Walt Disney and the way people looked at him. That maybe the maybe they were kind of fed up. And we had episodes upon episodes and episodes where we were like, Walt Disney this, Walt Disney that, Walt Disney won this. It kind of feels like. Yeah, Walt Disney should have won for this. This feels like a movie that I kind of would have solidified. And and one of the things I like with looking at the best picture list in total and look at all the movies is they cover a lot of different bases. A lot of the more modern stuff has helped to really capture it, but it captures a lot of different aspects of filmmaking in different parts of Hollywood. And a Disney film, I think, would have fit kind of perfectly in there. But doesn't get it. So... I don't know, man. I don't. I really don't know what much more what else to make of it because I think we can do a whole episode of Mary Poppins at this point. I think there's a lot to say, a lot to talk about, a lot of technical stuff. But uh, let's bring it back to My Fair Lady. Uh, so let's give some stats and figures to the movie. So on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 95%. The average Rotten Tomatoes rating is an 8.34. Top critics give it a 92 with an average rating of 9.5. The audience score is a 90 of an average rating of 4.28. IMDb gives it a 7.8. Metacritic gives it a 95. And it won eight awards out of the 12 nominations. John, what did you give My Fair Lady? Man, this was so hard. 
This was so, so difficult, especially after Tom Jones, which was like a movie I didn't really enjoy. But after My Fair Lady, I'm like, oh, my God, I like Tom Jones so much more now. And I look at this and and I'm like, oh, I got to compare it to another musical. And then you have Gigi and you're like, I gave Gigi a 40 and now I have to. Oh, my God, what do I do? (laughs) And I gave My Fair Lady a 55, which feels wrong. It feels wrong to me because now even like looking back at Gigi, I'm like, I don't even I may even enjoy that movie more. I, I don't at least as a story like that. It's clear and it's it's cohesive, even though I'm not really agreeing with the weird pedophilia nature of the film. But it still is a lot more clear of a story and arc and characters that I, I kind of care more about, even though I don't like them either in that movie. But in in My Fair Lady, I just I am just so let down by what this story is. And I think it also has to do with how much this film has been hyped up over my lifetime. And this was the first time I've ever gotten to watch it. And I was excited and I like a good musical and I've heard so much about this film and how great Audrey Hepburn is. And, oh man, I was just very disappointed. I just was expecting a lot more and a lot bigger. And it's a film that it makes perfect sense. Like I can see this as a musical, like the, the big sets, the, the dancing, the goofy nature, her loud cocky accent. It just feels like it makes a lot more sense as a musical because it's not really subtle. Like nothing about this film is subtle remotely at all. And filmmaking is about the mixture of subtlety with what you're seeing on screen. That's the whole point is subverting your expectations, but also you know, presenting something that's visually interesting, but also making you think and making you think about characters' choices and the themes of the films. And My Fair Lady doesn't really care at all about that. It's like, this is beautiful to look at to, to some people. This is big and grand. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of things going on in the background. This is good, right? Like, it's visually interesting, right? And to me, it's not even that visually interesting. So, I had to give it a 55. That seems so low. And to, to some people, that's like such a such a shame and such a, like a slap in the face for how much people love this movie. But it was really not for me. And it was not my kind of musical. But Ben, what did you give My Fair Lady? I gave it a 50. That was <laughs> not really hard for me to give. I, I don't know. I, I had it higher, like way higher when I originally put the, put it down i think that was just influenced from like people in my life being like no my fair lady's great i'm like i guess so but then i've seen the movie now a couple times i saw it a, a production of it and none of the times i enjoyed it so i even feel like i should even lower that number because i i just don't get it i think the story is so long the scenes drag on forever and ever the the musical numbers aren't really musical numbers i don't like rex harrison as a performer, I hate Henry Higgins as a character. Audrey Hepburn is so misused. It just, ugh, it's not like not just not a fan. Just not a fan of this movie at all. I feel like we spent the last you know two hours talking about this. I really don't know what more I can add to like that. I don't like this movie, so I'm just gonna give it a a fifty and just leave it at that. <laughs> so John, let me ask that question to you: Is My Fair Lady worthy? of the Best Picture Award of 1964. No. Should have went to Mary Poppins. I think Dr. Strangelove is... It's right there next to it, but it's hard not to like compare this to another musical and think about which musical is so much better, and that is Mary Poppins. So much better. 
yeah, I agree. This movie is not worthy. Not even close. Don't even know why it has such high praise. I'm going... Anyone who tells me My Fair Lady is good, I'm going to be like, okay, let me sit you down for three hours, three <laughs> hours this movie, and you're going to tell me that that movie deserves all the praise, deserves that rating, because I don't believe it. I don't believe that you believe it. I just think that you like some of the songs and the music, and you like Audrey Hepburn, and you think she's beautiful, but the story itself stinks. It's not worthy. It's a slap in the face. Mary Poppins so much better than it, so that's it. That's all I got to say about My Fair Lady. By George John, we we did it. We got through it. <laughs> we got through Almost. it. Almost. Uh, is there any last thing you want to talk about of My Fair Lady? Is there anything you want to say about the Oscars, what we're looking forward to next? You know, usually I'm out here spitting some joke, some one-liner from the movie, something stupid, but I wanted to be serious and, and give a pitch here. When there, When I watch movies that I don't like, Sometimes I just fantasize about what the movie could be or what it could possibly be in another in another world. And I like to imagine that there's a sequel to this film called The Doolittles. And the sequel is about Eliza Doolittle, who is so impressed with her phonetics, how much she's progressed in the world, that she wants to be a doctor herself. She goes out, becomes Miss Dr. Doolittle or just Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> And and while and while and while in school, she meets a young Eddie Murphy, who also happens to be a Doolittle, and they marry and live happily ever after and sing songs to their animals. <laughs> and that's that's all I have to say. I could have guessed that Dr. Doolittle would have been brought up. <laughs> I, I should have guessed that. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And this is <laughs> this Worthy. Is worthy. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> uh, a lot of tomfoolery. It was an immense achievement. Well, Mr. Higgins? A triumph, Mrs. Pierce, a total triumph. Higgins, you were superb. Absolutely superb. <sighs> Tell us the truth now. Weren't you a little bit nervous once or twice? No, not for a second. Not during the whole evening? No, no, no. It's all we were going to win hands down. I felt like a bear in a cage, oh, hanging oh, about, nothing oh, oh. to do. It was an immense achievement. If I hadn't backed myself to do it, I'd have given it up two months ago. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, a lot of tomfoolery. Higgins, I salute you. Oh, silly people don't know their own silly business. Tonight, old man, you did it. You did it. You did it. You said that you would do it, and indeed you did. I thought that you would rue it. I doubted you'd do it. But now I must admit it that succeed you did. You should get a medal or be even made a knight. Oh, it was nothing. Really nothing. All alone you hurdled every obstacle in sight. Now wait, now wait. Give credit where it's due. A lot of the glory goes to you. But you're the one who did it, who did it, who did it. As sturdy as Gibraltar, not a second did you falter. There's no doubt about it. You did it. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. 
Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.